so good to be with you this weekend. It has been absolutely incredible. Thank you to the music team for leading us to this place and the service, and for the sound team that don't always get the credit for making this thing work. Uh, thank you for all that you do. It's so much appreciated. Telling my story um, is obviously uncomfortable. Um, nobody, ideally, nobody likes to talk about themselves. Um, but for me, there's a little bit less discomfort in my story because there's really no trace of Andrew Bentley in there. If I could say, you know, there was a little bit of this or, you know, notwithstanding these circumstances, notwithstanding this situation, you know, I was pretty good in this area and, you know, I just really needed a leg up and if somebody would have just handed me a ladder, I would have climbed to the top. But the beauty of my story is there's no Andrew Bentley in the story. I was raised by a single mom and many of you have that experience in here, you know what that's like. As I told the, the people on the weekend, nobody ever looked at my report card. Nobody ever asked if I had homework. Um, academics were not something that were forefront in anybody's mind. In fact, I literally have no recollection of even doing homework for the 11 and a half, 12-ish almost years that I attempted to go to school. And as a result of that, that framed so much of my thinking. It also framed the opportunities that would be presented to me. I was, as I said, lived with a single mom, and I knew what it was like, and I talked about this this morning, to have friends that played on the hockey team, that had garages attached to their houses, that on Friday night, their parents would get groceries. Now, that might not sound like a big deal to you, but on Friday night, when, when groceries don't show up at your house, but at your friend's house, there's honeycomb, and there's cornflakes, and there's frosted flakes and all of these things. We used to eat pablum and skimmed milk. Now don't feel sorry for me, I, you know, we, we figured it out. And, but the skimmed milk, just by the way, we had powdered skimmed milk. Life is not good when you have to eat powdered skimmed milk and pablum for breakfast. And so in being raised by a single mom, there were not many opportunities presented to me. There were not opportunities for academics presented to me. There were not opportunities to have mentors in my life, people that I could look to. Even, you know, my wife and I were talking about a month ago, and we said, you know, we had no grandparents, so we don't even know what it means to be a grandparent, because none of us had, we didn't have grandparents. And we didn't have uh, the other half of the, of the spouse in the house. I didn't have a dad in the house, and now I'm a dad. What's it mean to be a dad? And I didn't have a dad to show me what's it mean to be a husband. But God intervened. At 16 years of age, I was working at a Dominion Stores, which is a grocery store in Ontario, and, and it was a good paying job. This is 41 years ago. I was making $7 an hour, and I had all of this money and nothing to do with it as a kid that wasn't spending a lot of time in school. And we said, why don't we fly across the country and we'll go to Banff, Alberta, which we lived in London, Ontario, just by Michigan, Let's fly to Banff and we'll go skiing all week long and just tear it up and have a good old time. And so we flew across to, uh, to Alberta. And at that time, my brother had moved to Calgary and was going to church at Pastor Johnny King's church. 
And they thought, you know, what we'll do is we'll, we'll, we'll really make an impression on them. We'll pick them up at the airport and we'll drive them downtown to the bus depot and then we'll make an appointment with them to drive out to Banff and to visit with them and spend some time with them. We can imagine a 16-year-old kid who thought, you know, he was cool and thinking, you know, who are these people that are going to come visit me? So the day came and they drove out to Banff. And I remember as they came up, we were staying at the Banff Springs Hotel. It's just this beautiful castle hotel in the mountains of Banff, which I still to this day don't actually know how we afforded it. I mean, I know how I afforded it. I had the money, but I don't know. I must have paid cash because I didn't have a credit card. But we're staying in this beautiful, luxurious hotel. And they come and visit us at the hotel. And they show up. This is in 1980. They show up in black dress shoes dress slacks, like suit slacks, and a dress shirt, and they're telling me they're here to go camping. And I don't know, for those of you who are closer to my age, like you're, we call them nerds back in the day, like my nerd radar is going off. I'm like, who are these squares? Like, are these people for real? What, what planet are they from? And so we went to a pizza shop, and I didn't tell this outside, but we go to a pizza shop, and we're sitting down there, and uh, the music's playing, and there's an Aerosmith song that comes on, and I'm just kind of grooving to the music, and all of a sudden, my brother gets up from the table, and he walks out of the restaurant, and I say to, to Pastor King, I said, where's he going? He said, oh, the music's bothering him. I've, I've got his Aerosmith t-shirt in my closet that I stole when he moved to Alberta. What do you mean the music is bothering him? I wanted nothing more than just to get out of that situation. They, they ended up driving us back to the hotel, and uh, I'll leave out many of the details in terms of the hotel, but it was a crazy, crazy week of just 16-year-old stupidity. So I drove, I flew back to London, Ontario, went back going to school, and then my brother got married. And I flew back out to Alberta for the wedding. And again, I'm just this kid tripping through life, trying to make money, hanging out, having as much fun as I possibly could. Fly back to Calgary, and we go to service on Sunday morning, and after service, we went to Mother Tucker's a restaurant, and on 10th Avenue, I remember we were standing there at the light, waiting for the light to change to walk, to go back to our vehicle, and I started crying. And there was another young guy who was there that came with us to lunch, and he said, are you okay? And completely embarrassed and not knowing what to say, I, I, in some regards, I really didn't even know why I was crying, and I just said, oh, I'm, I'm really missing my girlfriend. And he looked at me, because I had been gone like three days from London, but couldn't think of anything else to say. And I knew at that moment that I was going to change my life. I flew back to London, Ontario, and I quit school. Dropped out of high school. And spent the next couple years doing construction jobs or any kind of thing I could find. Life was hard. Life was hard. But I got the Holy Ghost. And I realized at that moment, somehow, someway, God's going to do something with my life. But I had no high school education. I decided I'd go to college, and I went to college, but I was going to college during the day, and I was working during the nights. 
and I was falling asleep and I couldn't maintain the schedule and so I dropped out of college. And so what opportunity is there for a 19-year-old, 20-year-old kid, no education, no money, but God? And so I answered an ad on the board at the college that said this job where you would do it was essentially a telemarketing job for computers. So I answered the, the ad for it. It was old, antiquated-type computer equipment. They went out of business literally three months after I joined. And, uh, but they gave me a really good reference that got me to another job. And so somebody else said, oh, I know Bill or whatever his name was. Yeah, I'll, I'll hire you. So they hired me. And I, I did that job for six months. And that, that went pretty good. And then I got another job. And, and that started going really good. And then finally I decided I'm going to go for the big leagues. And I got hired on with a company. It was a big company out of Toronto. And as I was waiting for the offer to show up, I said, you know, I don't know if they're going to hire me. What if they don't hire me? I've already quit my other job. And so I phoned Apple Computer and I said, would you be interested in a salesperson? He said, no, but my brother-in-law is in Calgary at the Palliser Host Hotel. And I think he's there interviewing. Maybe you could call him. So I called the Palliser Hotel. I asked for Blair Alsup. They rung me through to his room. I said, hi, Blair, this is who I am. Uh, he said, well, come on down. I'll take you for dinner. We had dinner together. We had a great conversation. I said, well, I kind of like you. So he flew the national sales manager into town, and we had dinner. And, and he said, you know, I really like you. One of the questions he asked, he said, so what do you want to do in five years? I said, you know, it all depends on what God wants. He says, I like that answer. And so he flew the president of Microsoft Canada out to, out to uh, Calgary, and I had dinner with them, and they ended up hiring me. No application, no resume, no interview, but three free meals. And they hired me to become a salesperson. And I could look at every single job I've had when I, when I started with IBM, same problem, no degree, no education. They, they, put, they made me fill out an application and, and I said, look, I haven't got anything, any credentials. You, you, you're not gonna wanna hire me. He said, well, we'll make, you, we'll make you write a test. I can't remember what the test was, but they ended up hiring me. When I reflect back on all of those years of God just moving me from situation to situation, giving me favor with people, not because I had anything that I had to offer. I was the guy that in school I would never read aloud. In fact, you might, for some of you who are older, you know that the pastor would sometimes have the young men on the front bench read. I remember the time when I was sitting in church and had my white shirt on and my buzz cut and missing my hair and wondering what I got into. And, and uh, Pastor King starts assigning scriptures. And as he's going down the aisle, I'm like, oh, no. He's got more than just a few. And so I literally stood up and started feigning a coughing fit. And I coughed my way out the back door. And I said, I cannot read. I don't read aloud. I don't talk in public. I don't do that thing. And I remember at Microsoft having to do presentations and, and, and literally standing in, in the back room somewhere saying, God, you got to help me through this because I can't do it. And God would intervene. And so the story of my life is really the story of intervention. How God in every situation 
came and filled the gap. When I didn't have whatever it took, God came in and made a way. And so I want to talk today, I'll make no secret tonight, that I want to talk to those of you who are between 12 and 30 years old. These are interesting times. I, I never like the expression, these are the worst times ever, because candidly, they're not the worst time ever. And they are interesting times, and they're difficult times, and, and the rules of the game are changing. And you know that the rules are changing, that the, the foundation underneath you is changing, economically and philosophically, and all of these shifts that are happening, and you're wondering, what does it look like for a Christian in this world? And I can tell you as a guy who grew up in Microsoft and Amazon and IBM and Hewlett-Packard and all of these companies, and, and there would be times where we had a, we had a deal where we were going to go to Bill's house for dinner, and I had a Bible study, and I, I pulled the pin. I said, sorry, I can't make it, and I flew back to Calgary and missed the, the, the dinner at Bill's house. I can tell you there have been times when the booze starts flowing and the music cranks up. We were stuck. I remember being stuck on a boat once. And they're all doing the locomotion, you know, holding each other's hips. Everybody's doing And they're dancing all around me. And I'm sitting there saying, oh, God, get me out of here. <laughs> Everyone knows I didn't drink. Everyone knows I don't watch TV. In fact, a funny story, uh, one of the positions I had, my assistant, when people would interview with me or when people would meet with me, and I only found this out after the fact, she would say to them, just so you know, he's like basically culturally illiterate. So if you, like, make movie references or anything like that, you're going to lose him. So if you're trying to make an impression, skip all the funny stuff and the, the cultural references because he's not going to get it. And so I only found out after the fact that Helen had done that. And it was, again, this idea that can I actually be a Christian? Can I make a stand? Can people actually know that I don't watch television and still respect me? Could I still win the national? Actually, it was a countrywide award that they ended flying me to Europe for, um, for this global award with Microsoft, knowing full well that I wasn't going to be the guy that got drunk. I wasn't going to be the guy that went to the party. I wasn't going to be the guy that was out dancing on the floor. At 7.30, 8 o'clock after the dinner end, I said, I'm taking my leave now. Thank you very much. And they'd see me in the morning. And my encouragement to you as young people, that if you let God be what he wants to be in your life. There is no limitation. A friend of mine, Glenn Hawker, I'm telling too many stories. I'll tell one more story. A friend of mine, Glenn Hawker. Glenn is a character. Glenn is this guy that he has the Midas touch. He buys a helicopter because he wants to, he likes the idea of owning a helicopter. So he buys himself a helicopter, spends $100,000 to get a, a license, and then he sells the helicopter and makes essentially all of his money back minus $4,000, right? How do you buy a helicopter and sell it? And, and just the way, because Glenn's got the Midas touch. Glenn bought a house and sells it and always makes money. So Glenn is just this crazy, crazy character. He comes up to me and he says, uh, AB. AB, by the way, might at first blush feel like my initials, Andrew Bentley. It actually stands for Amish boy. <laughs> so Hawker comes up to me. He says, Bentley. He says, what? He says, what's this? Clip, clop, clip, clop, clip, clop, bang. I said, I don't know, Glenn, what, what is it? He says, it's an Amish drive-by shooting. Oh my God. And while that may feel 
disingenuous. Who do you think Hawker called and spent hours in my office talking to during the divorce? Who does Hawker talk to and, and talk about the things he's afraid of and the things that he cares about? People appreciate, oh, there might be a few jokes. Can you stand it? Are you strong enough to stand it? Can you, can you stand being called Amish boy and go with it? Because when the chips are down, when it really matters most, they want to know the person that's been married for 39 years, how they navigated those waters. They want to know about the person that has integrity, that has character, that's not going to go blab everything that they tell them. So I want to talk to you tonight about this changing world that we live in. You know, you, you, can, you, can, you can turn fiction into fact if you just tell more people. It seems like if you just amplify it, if you just add more noise, if you just add repetition, fact becomes fiction in this crazy, crazy world that we live in. But it's a world that you have to navigate. And it's a world that you have to overcome. And I have confidence that you can do it. The challenges of today are the challenges that, that we face with pornography. It's about availability. It's about anonymity. Uh, it's about affordability. And, and the sin of today, more so than when I was your age, didn't have the same level of anonymity. In the city I live, I'll run into a church people maybe once a month. I might run into a church person. You can travel throughout the city and never meet another church person. And the availability of sin, you can, you can go on an application. You can go on, on the web. You can find all of the vices of life so easily today. And it's such an affordable price because everything has a gateway price associated with it. It's not just the drugs that have gateway prices, but pornography has gateway prices. Hey, click on this. Here's some clickbait for you. But you've got to guard against that. You've got to be diligent. You've got to be strong. You've got to be willing to fight the fight. I'm reminded of Thomas Jefferson, President of the United States, elected in 1801. And he was a, a polyglot. He was an intellectual uh, an incredible thinker, and as, as he kind of, the Louisiana Purchase in 1803, and then ultimately he acquired $2,500 from Congress or whatever it was at the time in order to send these guys, Lewis and Clark, across the country to find the Northwest Passage. And what's so incredible about this story is it's a story of, of all of the, 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 the peaks and the valleys and the journeys of where they went. But what appeals to me about the story is sending these two men out without a map and to make the map. And I feel like today in this apostolic movement where we are that in many ways we're going out into our daily lives without a map. That the things, Brother Frost, that you would have dealt with and the, and the answers that you provided, you know, everything was easily, at least when I was younger as I remember it, Brother Frost, everything was in a really nice grid. You know, I knew what the answer was. TV, yes or no? It's no. But what if TV doesn't exist? What if TV has morphed into this thing that, that is, is, 
is all, it, it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere you go that this idea of a visual bait is constantly reaching for you. And so I can't go to the grid TV or no grid TV. I can't go to the, the good old Hollywood grid, Hollywood or no Hollywood. I, I can't go to all of these things that seem so well-placed and so easily navigated in my life. But now I'm somewhere out in the wilderness, and I don't know. A friend of mine, we were at work, and she said, my daughter came home from school the other day, and she said, there's a girl in her class that thinks she's a fox. And we have to treat her like a fox. And no snickering. No, you're not a fox. Like, come on. You don't have paws. Those are called hands. She wants to be a fox. She can be a fox. And you encounter people in your lives and in the situations, and, you're, and you don't know how to navigate it, and you don't have easy answers for it. And like Lewis and Clark, you're out in the wilderness somewhere, and you're trying to, you're trying to create a map while you're trying to find your way, and only to find out there's, in fact, not a Northwest Passage. To fact, find out that there's not, in fact, a waterway that just sort of takes you through. And you encounter these things called mountains. And you go, where are we now? And I think for young people today, it feels sometimes like that. That sometimes you wish for the old days, it's like, wow, it seemed so easy back then when you knew this was what you did and this is what you didn't do. And I just, if I just checked the boxes, I could, I could, I could get through it all and, and make, make what needed to be done. But today you're navigating, you're navigating economics. For, for you on the front row, you'll be the last drivers. Your children won't drive cars. Your children may not go to work. They'll do work, but they may not go to work. And what does that mean? And what are the implications of all of these things that are happening in terms of technology and innovation? And how do we as Christians, as young people, stand strong against that? How do we resolve in our mind you know, as a Canadian, we, 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 we have this, this big brother syndrome, right? People, and people ask Canadians, so what's it mean to be a Canadian? Well, well, we're not like the United States, right? That's a terrible way to compare yourself. You compare yourself by something you're not. Like, yeah, but what are you? Well, I, I have great respect for the United States. And I think about the United States and that, that Lewis and Clark was was such a pivotal moment in the history of the United States because it helped you recognize the opportunity. That the, the splendor and the beauty and the boundless wilderness and opportunity that existed for your country. And then fast forward, the Civil War comes and, and, you, and you learned what are your values as a, as a country. And then World War I comes and World War II comes and you realize you found out what your opportunity was and you found out what your values were and now you found out what your responsibility is. And here we are now. And you guys don't have a war to say, oh, that's, that's who we are, that's what we are. And so what's, what's the next 50 years going to teach the United States? What are they going to show you? Lewis and Clark told you about the opportunity. The Civil War talked about your values. World War I and World War II talked about your responsibility. But the next one is about resilience. The experiment of the United States is now about resilience. Can this democracy withstand the future? I'm going to take a, a, a bit more time tonight than I took this morning. And so please think with me as I challenge your thinking around 
the changes that we're seeing. Even economically, the changes that we see are, are absolutely changing the way we think about life. You know, these Airbnbs, these Ubers, these are companies that didn't exist 15 years ago, and all of a sudden, a company that has no real estate is worth more money, in fact, 2x worth more money than Hilton and Marriott put together with millions of rooms around the world, with global real estate holdings around the world, and a company with an application is worth more. A guy by the name of Elon Musk is worth more money than anybody else in the world, and he sells 500,000 cars a year. The company is worth three times what Volkswagen and GM and Ford are put together. And you look at this and you go, how do I make sense of this? And philosophically and intellectually and morally, we look at our world and we say, how do I make sense of this? The scripture talks about woe to them. Isaiah 5.20, woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And as young people today, you're probably asking yourself, what do I do for a job? How do I show up? What does it mean? And in all of that, how do I plant a flag in the ground? How do I stand against all of these things that I don't even understand? And my encouragement to you today, tonight, is that the first thing you got to do is just stand. Stand there for. Stand there for. Get on your front foot. I don't know if that's a Canadian expression, but get on your front foot. Right? Don't be on your back foot. Get on your front foot and get out there and ready to, to not hit, but to just get out there and stand for truth. Be willing to get into the marketplace and ask questions. Get in willing to get into the marketplace and, and, and challenge their ideas. I just finished reading Bertrand Russell's Why I'm Not a Christian, and the only thing I could come away from that is hit me with your purse again. And that doesn't mean to be disparaging to women, but this is it. This is your best argument for why you're not a Christian? Hit me with your purse again. Look, we have understanding. We can fight the good fight of faith. We are not the backwater. We are not intellectually deprived. You're going to see something, and I'm going off script here for just a second. But, you know, you, you, everybody's always talking about, well, what does the science say? What does the science say? My prediction is people will stop saying, what does the science say? Because what happens is you look under the microscope, and you look deeper and deeper and deeper, and you get down into the quantum level. When you get down to that level, this is why Einstein, Einstein said God doesn't play dice. Because he's like, no, 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 no. Light is either a particle or it's a wave. It can't be both. It's not capricious. Light doesn't choose based upon whether it's observed, whether it decides to be a wave or a particle. And he says that's why he said God doesn't play dice. And what happens is you get lower down and you look more into the fundamentals of life. What you find out is there's design. You find out that this idea of quantum, that, that this idea of entanglement, that particles being entangled, one over here and one over there, when one moves, the other one moves. And, and they say, well, that's impossible because it defies the speed of light and relativity and, and all of those things, but God. And so as you get further and further and you get into more detail and more granularity, what you'll find out is that God is actually ever-present in everything. And so watch, watch. The, 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 the science, 
They're going to stop making appeals to science because science is going to start to show them things as they dig deeper and deeper. It's a fabulous time to be alive. It is a fabulous, fabulous time to be alive. If you would give me the first slide. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 28 says, Remove not the ancient landmark which thy fathers have set. I want to talk a little bit tonight about the landmarks and the opportunity that we have not to remove the landmarks. This idea of not removing the landmarks, why does that matter? There's really two things that are associated with this idea of landmarks. Landmarks served a couple purposes. One is they delineated ownership between property. The landmark, I have the property from the front of this uh, platform to the first pew. That's my space. And I would use a landmark to de for the demarcation of that space. And the second reason landmarks were given is a directional signal. Okay, if you go, when you get to the rock, you turn right. And the Bible says for us not to remove the old landmarks because these are descriptions of ownership. And the question for you tonight as you navigate this world and all the uncertainty and you're wondering, if, how do I make sense of it? You have to make sense of it first from the perspective of the landmarks. And the first landmark is who owns what? Who owns what in your mind? Who owns the economy? Who owns science? Who owns everything that happens in this world? If you believe that it's owned by God, it'll change your thinking. So who owns it? Who's in control of it? And the directional arrow in terms of that landmarks, who's setting the course of life? You have got to settle in your mind. Who owns you? Who owns you? How much can I buy you for? How much can I, how much would it take me to just distract you for a moment and get you off, off topic, to get you off course? Depends on what you believe about who owns what and what direction we're going from. Take from the altars of the past the fire, not the ashes. Tonight I want to talk to you about history versus heritage. And this idea of history versus heritage is not just me trying to be cute and a play on words, but in fact, history and heritage are very two very different words. They are, in terms of the etymology of the words, what they actually mean, where they come from, the composition, the construction of those words, they're different in terms of what they represent to us. And so history is this notion from the Latin word historia, which is this idea of knowledge or inquiry. It's, it is the curation of events. It is the, not a commentary on the events, but rather a reflection or a curation of events. It's neither good nor evil. It is just the history. It's the past. It's the past revealed, the past curated so that we can understand it. Next slide, if you would. History is written by the, by the winners, it's often said. Until the story of the hunt is told by the lion, the tale of the hunt will always glorify the hunter. 
so funny today, I, I'm shocked at the revisionist history that we constantly get presented to us. But if you remember that there are old landmarks, that there are ownership and directional errors, and if you understand foundationally what those are, you won't be tricked by all of the talk. Next slide, if you would, please. It says this of history, it is the most dangerous product ever concocted by the chemistry of intellect. It inebriates nations. It saddles them with false memories. It, it keeps their old sores running and torments them when they're not at rest. And it induces them in a megalomania and the mania of persecution. So many times we live in our history. We live in the past. We live in the things that happened to us. We live at the, the heartbreaks and the disappointments the time when we pulled away from that beautiful house with the double-attached garage and the ten oak trees and the German shepherd in the backyard and as we pulled out of that beautiful neighborhood and drove to another neighborhood where I didn't know anyone and we, and we pulled up to these dumpy three-story walk-up apartments. Is that history going to define me? Am I going to live in that, that sense of of deprivation that I never had, the opportunities that other people had as a result of the choices of my parents. You see, when you allow history to be the only lens on which you view your life and the only lens in which you telegraph your life, you will live a very sorry, sorry life. But heritage, on the other hand, means something completely different. Originally taken to mean the property, and it morphed into this idea that it was that thing or those things from the past that have intrinsic value and that are worthy of being passed down. History versus heritage. Will you live in a history or will you live in a heritage? We used to take companies in my job, I would take them to Silicon Valley, and I remember on one particular trip we went to Hewlett Packard, and we took them to the executive briefing center and you go in there and that's where they do all the presentations and the dog and pony show and show them all the technology, yada, yada, yada. And I remember walking into the lobby and every device, if you go to the next slide, every device that HP had ever created was in the lobby. The hyperspectral 8600 blah, blah, blah. And so we, we went and finished the executive briefing. They came in, they did all their presentations, they talked about who they were and it was interesting and it was the classic stuff that you've seen every other time that you've been to an executive briefing center. Then we crossed the road and we went to Apple. And I remember distinctly walking into the executive briefing center of Apple and looking around and I was like, where's the Lisa? Where's the Newton? Where's the Apple IIc? Where's the original iPhone? Where's the, where's the, where's the? And I remember asking the gentleman and I said, where's, where's all, the, all the cool technology you used to have? And he kind of shrugged his shoulders and he said, oh, Steve gave them to a museum. And this isn't a lesson about Apple versus HP, but as a company, it's interesting how one is, is retaining and trying to hold tight to their history as much as they can. Where another organization says, yes, we have a history, but not all of the history comes forward. What comes forward is the heritage. Design principles. Elegance. Simplicity, 
And we could go on and talk about Apple, but tonight's not a... Next uh, slide, if you would. This was in the briefing center the, on the wall as you walked into the lobby. I think if you do something and it turns out pretty good, then you should go do something else wonderful and not dwell on it for too long. Just figure out what's next. And I worry about us sometimes as, as, a, as an organization when we live too much in our history as opposed to thinking about and curating those things in our heritage that we have to bring forward. You see, peanut brittle doesn't work in 2021. White shirts, although I'm wearing a white shirt out of deference, uh, white shirts, mandatory. Excuse me, brother, in the back, would you please stand up? I notice you're not wearing a white shirt. Doesn't work in 2021 too well. Having, having maybe stood up one or two times for not wearing a white shirt. What is it that's part of our heritage that we have to bring forward? Because there are things in our history that didn't necessarily work. There are things in our history that don't necessarily have to come forward. And in this crazy world that we're living in, where the rules are changing and the economics are changing and innovation is changing and the government and all the things that are happening, we have to ask ourselves, what do we do? And how do we bring our heritage forward? On March 11th, next slide, 2011, some of you will remember this picture. Let's go to the next one, sorry, my mistake. Some of you remember this picture. 16,000 fatalities. $360 billion of destruction. It is the remnants of a tsunami that had ripped through the coastline of Japan. And while that's devastating enough to look at and to imagine the pain and the destruction, what's even more painful for me than that is if you would, the next slide, is this little piece of rock. This little rock is called a tsunami stone. If you visit the Isle of Japan, you will notice that there are many tsunami stones. And what the tsunami stones essentially say on them is don't build below this point. We have to figure out, as we move forward, where are the tsunami stones to be placed? I can't just tell you young people anymore, don't watch Hollywood, because I don't even know what Hollywood is anymore. I feel like CNN is Hollywood, quite frankly. And so I don't know what that means. But I know that if you consume large volumes of CNN, your perspective will change and not for the better. And so we've got to think about how we curate our life in such a way that these tsunami stones are placed 
in our terms of our heritage, those things that regardless of the ground rules that are shifting underneath us, regardless of what happens in the future, we've got to place these tsunami stones as part of our heritage, those things we are bringing from the past that have intrinsic value for the future. And so I want to take the next few minutes to talk about those. Paul says in Galatians 1.6, I marvel that you are so soon removed. It's an enticing world. And, and candidly, young people, I'm, I have great compassion for the things that you have to navigate. But I also have great confidence because you're smarter than that junk. You're smarter than that junk. And so I want to propose to you tonight that there are some things that have to go into the future. And in no particular order, I want to suggest the first one that I'll mention tonight is that forgiveness matters. That in this world that we're living in, there are mistakes that are made and people fall and, 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 and people find themselves in situations. And the question is that for us as a church, as the body of Christ, as the last bastion, the last place of hope and redemption, can you forgive? That is part of who you are as a young person as you move into your future. And as the ground rules change and everything becomes topsy-turny, you have to remember forgiveness is fundamental to living. Forgiving yourself because you're going to make a mistake. Because you're going to do something that's probably not ideal. And you're going to have to look in the mirror and say, you know, that wasn't a great choice. But today I'm going to forgive you because he forgives me. And because we have an advocate with the Father, that if we confess our faults, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. He is the propitiation. He will cleanse us and renew us. The Bible says in Luke 11, 4, and forgive us our sins also as we forgive others. Forgiveness is going to matter in this world going forward. We're going to have to forgive people that go off sideways. We're going to have to forgive people that make mistakes. We're going to have to forgive people that, that we said, don't do that. And they still did it. And the question is, is when your friend beside you makes that decision, can you bring them back into fellowship and back into love? And give them your kindness and your strength and, and the trust. Forgiveness matters. Number two, not hierarchically, number two, but the second one is love. First John 4.18 says, He that loveth not knoweth not God. There is nothing more quintessentially God, more fundamentally God than love. We know 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, that it doesn't put itself forward, that it, that it doesn't, that it, it forgives, that it's kind, that it's patient. Love matters. And as you go into this world, it's easy to be judgmental. It's easy to see, well, of course your life is, is, is spinning out of, out of control. Look at the choices you've made. But somehow in your faithfulness and your love of God, you've got to restrain yourself 
and you've got to embrace those people in this world that are making bad choices and say, I love you. I'm there for you. And there's forgiveness for you. Love is patient, kind, doesn't envy, doesn't boast. And it endures. I was so hardened tonight as I thought about being in this place, coming full circle and, and meeting uh, the, the place where I essentially where you know, my, my descendants, where I, I originated from, so to speak. And you know, when you, you go back to the country and you meet your cousins and you go, oh, they, they have that crooked nose just like I do. And I, I remember as, as when Brother Bradford was telling me the schedule, he said, well, it's 5.30 for prayer. I can't tell you how good that made me feel. 5.30 for prayer. Prayer still matters. And I don't know if we're going to pray in the microphone. I don't know if we're going to pray at the front. I don't know if we're going to pray on our knees. I don't know if we have to pray rocking. I don't know what it looks like. I don't know what the methodology <clears throat> looks like. <clears throat> Excuse me. But prayer matters. Prayer is fundamental. And as young people, if you want to stand against this world, you're going to have to learn how to pray. You're going to have to learn how to carve out time in your day to clear your thoughts and put everything aside and talk to God. Prayer matters. Our communication to God is fundamental. Fundamental to who we are. 1 Corinthians 9, 24, 27 says, Know ye not that they which run a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. So run that ye may obtain. I think our heritage is about discipline and rigor. And I, I don't want to overstep any, any, any boundaries here, but I want to encourage you, uh, young men and young ladies, but young men, be disciplined. Discipline of thought. Discipline of body. Discipline of mind. Rigor. Discipline. The imposition into your life. I force it into my life. I force rigor and discipline into my life. I don't wait for somebody to come on and say, hey, you need to do this, you need to do that, you need to stop doing this, you need to stop doing that. I look for opportunities how I can force discipline into my life. And I want to encourage you to be men, to be strong, to have rigor, to have discipline in your life. And young ladies, the same. Be disciplined. Be rigorous in your thoughts, in the things that you aspire towards, the things that, that, that provide you pleasure, that, that, that you desire, be disciplined. Be rigorous. Hebrews 12, 14, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man can see the Lord. Separation is still part. Now, I don't know. We used to call white shirts holiness when I was going to church. We'd argue at the young men at camp meeting. Was it salvific? Was it not salvific? We talked about a bunch of crazy things. But I can tell you this, that separation in whatever manifestation, whatever the house rules are, that if you don't think about yourself in terms of separation, when you go to a place of business or when you go to an event or you're in some venue where there are other people and if you feel like you fit, I challenge you 
to ask yourself the question, have I imposed enough separation into my life? Do I want to show up and think and laugh and, and look at and, and know all the things? You know, and I, I wear it as a bit of a badge of honor when somebody says, Bobby Smith, I don't know, I'm just making that Bobby Smith, and I'm like, who's Bobby Smith? And they go, oh, that's right. That's right. Yes, that is right. I don't know who Bobby Smith is, and I don't care who Bobby Smith is. Because I have a higher purpose, and I have a higher calling, and I will remain separate. I will remain distinct. And when they need something different, when they're looking for a change in their life, when they're looking for a new way, when they're trapped, this idea, the same level of thinking that got you in the problem isn't going to get you out of it. And when they're looking for a new level of thinking, when they're looking for a new perspective, they're going to look for the contrast. That's our opportunity. John 3, 3 through 5, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say to you, except a man be born of the water and of the Spirit. Salvation and specifically transformation is part of our heritage. We will always, whatever it looks like, I don't know, again, I, I think of all the times where we were shaking people to death in the front. We were yelling at them. We were jumping on them. We were, we were doing everything. I got the Holy Ghost. Somebody said, go for a run. Okay, I'll go for a run. I don't know. Is that, is, is that normative? I don't know. I've never read in the Bible they went for a run, but I went for a run. But one thing I know, regardless of the method of what that looks like, that there is something that we have to remain fundamental to, which is that salvation is a transformative experience. That the things I love, Romans 7, Paul says, the things that I love now I hate. That there has been a juxtaposition in my brain that I no longer see things the way I used to see them. And that we have to hold on to that belief. Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. For this one, for me, it is a belief in abundance. Now, I'm so tired of this, tell it to the universe, abundance thinking, it's the secret, uh, you know, blab it and grab it, whatever the, these things are that people are constantly talking about. This is not some, you know, I just, I believe in abundance and therefore I get more stuff. No, it's a belief not in abundance in terms of stuff, but that in with God, all things are possible. That fundamentally you have to believe that with God, all things are possible. Let's, let's stand this evening. I hope you haven't felt lectured through my exuberance to communicate. But this matters so, so very much. That we get this heritage and history thing right. Because we're off the map. We don't have a grid for how it used to be. The stuff we're encountering today, there, there, it's... I, Brother Bradford, correct me. I, there's, there's things that are happening today I can't even find in the Bible as to what to do. I don't know. 
What if something, and I, we don't even need to go. There are stuff I'm just like, I don't know. I just, I don't know. I don't even know what passage to look at. Oh, there's, there's probably some directional arrows that talk about things. But what, it's crazy sometimes. I feel like I'm off the map. And so I got to figure out what's going to be a part of my heritage. That regardless of the ground and however the ground changes, there's a heritage of things that have to go forward with me. I want to end with the last slide, if you would. On January the 27th, 1986, those of you who are old enough to know will remember this picture, and you'll probably remember where you were. This is the Challenger shuttle explosion. What happened on that day, if you've read the history or the books on this, you know that there was a, essentially an O-ring malfunction that they believe was related to the temperature. And what is so sad, devastating, and unfortunate about this story is that many have, have said that they were irresponsible. Some said they were culpable for what happened. And there's been lots of talk and discussion about what happened on that day. Essentially, the temperature was going to be 20 degrees lower than any other launch day that they had had. And there was speculation that the O-rings would do something. In this particular case, due to temperature, they may harden and not form a proper seal. And if you read the history on this thing, you'll find out that they pontificated for three hours. Should we, shouldn't we? Yes or no? And they pulled in all the engineers and all the people that should have a point of view on this. And they, they argued, yes or no, yes or no, should we or shouldn't we? But ultimately, they made a decision. And they made a decision based on a question. And the question they asked was, can you prove that it's not safe to launch? Jim Collins, in his book, how the mighty have fallen says what happened on that day wasn't a, a dereliction of duty it was an inversion of a question see the question was can you prove it's not safe to launch well because if you can't we're launching they knew that at lower temperatures there was performance issues related to the rings but they also knew that there was some data that suggested at 73 degrees, 53 being the lowest temperature they'd launched for, that at 73 degrees they'd also experienced some abnormalities with the technology. And so when forced with the decision, the go or no-go decision, is can you prove that it's not safe, they made a fatal error in the absence of data, in the argument of from silence, from the inability to actually prove that, they went ahead because they inverted the question, they should have inverted the question. Can you prove that it's safe to fly? And if you can't, then we won't. And I tell you that story because I think all of us have the risk, if you will, <clears throat> inverting the question. See, in, in, in in opportunities of caution or consequence. 
we sometimes ask the wrong question. We ask the question, well, can you prove that God will be displeased if I do this? Well, when we're off the map, I sometimes don't have an answer for you because I'm just, we're off the map. I can give you sort of some, some sort of guidelines. I can frame some things for you, but can I, can I answer the question, can you prove? What you may find is that you can't always prove. And so you've got to figure out how to invert the question. For me, this is not about what I can prove. And this isn't about for me, and, and hell is real, make no mistake. <clears throat> for me, it's about being in relationship with the one that transformed my life. Andrew Bentley stands before you this evening because of Jesus Christ. There is nothing that I can point to, no ingenuity, no network, no connections, no academic credentials, but God. And so young people, you have an incredible future ahead of you, an incredible opportunity ahead of you. And there are things in your history that you don't have to bring forward, but you have to bring everything from your heritage forward. make a difference in this world. Please, please, please. Whenever I leave companies, people, you know, write notes and, and you get to hear and see things that you may not have seen if you had stayed. And it's not going to tell you what those things say except to say you start to get the insight of what effect you truly are having. And while it may not feel like you're making a difference in the heat of the moment, in sometimes the embarrassment, sometimes you're being ostracized, set aside, set apart. Sometimes it's lonely. Sometimes it's weird sitting by yourself when everybody's thinking doing shooters is fun and funny. And, and you're sitting there by yourself but take it from me somebody is watching somebody's paying attention somebody's looking at that resolution and they'll be inspired by your resolution your resolve to stand for what you believe is right let's pray God help us God, I'm so thankful for the privilege to know you. God, for the opportunity to stand in my place. God, in the place that you've given for me to represent hope and life and truth. My prayer tonight is for all of our young people, God. God, put a resolve in their spirit. God, help them to stand against the lies of this world. God, to love truth and to love righteousness. God, I pray that you would endow them with strength and power. 
to stand fast in the power of your might. God, we need you today. Jesus, help us.